Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I'm Liesl Pritzker-Simmons. I'm the co-founder of Blue Haven Initiative, which is one of the first single-family offices to focus exclusively on impact investing. I think a lot of women get words put on them, and it's tough sometimes to break through that and sort of say, no, I'm going to be the one that sets actually who I am, and I'm still working at that. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Liesl Pritzker-Simmons is a philanthropist and co-founder of Blue Haven, which aims to create positive social and environmental change through investing. She explains how to choose investments that match your values. So Liesl, you are a child actress. (laughs) How come you didn't stay in the profession? Good question, Um, because things always turn out really well for child actors. (laughs) Well, when I was about 21, um, and I was still doing a lot of theater while I was in college, but when I was 21, I inherited control over over my investment portfolio, and that really changed um, my priorities. And I decided that probably a higher and better use of my time uh, would be focusing on the impact of that financial portfolio and, uh, and, and leave the acting to other people <laughs> who want it more. So, gotcha. however, I found that um, a lot of the training uh, from my theater background particularly has come in extremely handy uh, in the business world. How so? Well, it, it's in, in terms of risk-taking, in terms of how do you build trust in a team very quickly. Um, you know, when you're, when you're joining a cast, you have usually six weeks to become extremely intimate, emotionally intimate with the people that you're about to be on stage with. So there's a lot of things around team building um, that I've, I've found translate well into the business world as well. So risk-taking and team building, which... Yeah. yeah, useful, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to back up a little bit, um, you said when you were little, when you realized that, you know, people started to associate you with money, that got a little weird. So can you explain what that was like? Well, I grew up uh, in a family that is a well-known business family, and I'm very proud of that legacy. Um there are a number of different businesses that my family has been involved in, but they're most well-known for um, being owners of Hyatt Hotels. Um, and that now there's lots of different ventures across uh, different sectors that they're involved in. But I grew up in Chicago um, once the family had sort of a well-established sort of business legacy. And so I knew from an early age that I was part of this. Uh, and so that does, I think, shape um, a sense of responsibility in terms of carrying on family legacy, um, as well as uh, a responsibility to to give back as well. That you sort of, I got born really lucky, um, and I've always been aware of that since a young age. Um, some wealthy folks want to keep their wealth a secret, and you've said in the past that can be unproductive. So I'm just wondering what you mean by that. Well, we live in an era of Google. We live in an era of Forbes 400 lists. Um, I think that ship has well since sailed, that you can just keep your wealth very private. 
Um, I always find it really interesting, particularly when you talk to um, parents of next gens of wealth Mm -hmm. and privilege where they just sort of assume because they never talked about money in front of their kids that their kids have no idea that they're from a wealthy family. And I just think the jig is up, um, right. and it's better to have that conversation early and often. One thing I was always um, really grateful for was my mom started taking me to um, quarterly meetings and investment meetings from the time I was about 12 mm. um, to get comfortable with the jargon and the language of an investment portfolio and what it means and how do you work with advisors and how do you look at an asset allocation and how do you negotiate fees and um, all those kinds of things from an early age. And so I just think why it's unproductive to hide it instead of using it as an opportunity to educate your kids around how to be a really responsible investor. Some young people, I think, hide it um, because they feel or they know that other people treat them differently when they find out their last name. We've had other inheritors on the show and they say the dynamic changes. And I'm just wondering if that's been your experience at all. Um, I think I tend to wear my story on my sleeve. Um, I'm a pretty transparent person generally. Um you know, we're probably one of the only family offices that we publish every investment we make on our website. Um, we have a website. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Things like that. Um, so I'm comfortable being open about it. And so I just, that way I get to control the story instead of somebody else building something up in their head. And so, um, but that's my approach. Uh, other people are more private and um, and more protective of of. Of, of family in that way. And so um, I think they're just different different approaches. And I just, um, I don't know, I assume if people know what I want to show them and I can give them that information myself, um, then we can get to a deeper relationship quicker that instead of me of playing sense. hide the ball. Right, right. Other people have talked about the sense of guilt uh, being very privileged and going around the world and seeing people who aren't privileged or even just in their own country. What do you think of that? Um, I definitely understand that. I I have felt a lot of that myself. Um, you look at inequality in this country, let alone in other places. And I'm, got, I'm not self-made. I'm an inheritor. I'm somebody that just got born really lucky. So um, uh, I feel a, a deep sense of guilt around that. However... Um, what I don't have a whole lot of patience for is wallowing in that. Mm. Um, I think that's even worse <laughs> than really? the inequality. Like so. Well, you know, at a certain point, acknowledge uh, acknowledge your privilege and now do something about it. Yeah. What are you actually? So that, that's a really good point. Let's move on, yeah. right? So whether it's through your philanthropy, whether it's through your work, whether it's through your investing, whatever it is. Use the fact that you got born lucky. If you go hide in the corner, I don't have a lot of patience for that, for kind of the the inaction because of self-pity. So do something about it and and use that luck um, to to do something that is better for the world. And so um, while I I do understand and empathize the guilt, I I think you get a, a window of time to feel guilty and then let it motivate you to do something. How do you get the motivation? Because some of your peers don't have the same motivation you have. Uh, deep fear of failure. 
So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, I, I again, I've said this now a couple of times. I feel really lucky, and yeah. I feel I feel accountable to that. And so, um, if I can, uh, I want I want to push myself to do something that's useful for the world. And if I do it somewhat publicly, there's a better sense of accountability around it. And so, um, I think. Um, yeah, a sense of of being public about what we're doing so that it's under a little bit more scrutiny. Mm. And that's a good motivator. Um, I want to be be careful and prudent. If I hit it, I'd also be able to hide our failures. Um, mm. And that's not really helpful to anybody. So um, I think that's that's part of part of the motivation. And then also, I'm proud of the family legacy that I come from, and I would love to leave I'd love to help build that too in my own way. And so um, that's a lot to live up to because we've got some pretty incredible leaders in my family. But if there's a way that um, I can add to that family legacy, that's also a big motivator. Because the thing is, if someone like me can't take a risk, right. so that's the thing. Right. Of, I have absolutely no excuses because right. I have about 150 safety nets underneath me. And so right. I think that's, you know, trying to be honest about that too. And so it's like, listen, what's the worst that's going to happen? Exactly. Um, so let me try and push myself further. Coming up, Liesl Pritzker-Simmons explains misconceptions about making investments that are good for society and how families can make an impact with their philanthropy. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. So you went to India after receiving your inheritance, and you said it was there for the first time you realized you had something to offer other than money. What did you mean by that? So I was in I was in college when I when I gained control over this wealth, and it was it was overwhelming. Um, and so I took some time off, and I you know did I don't know a stereotypical went to India and volunteered right. right? I know. Anyway, I'd love to live a cliche. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but while I was there, um, so I did a couple of different things, and one of which was uh, working at a daycare center. Just the, you know, I think anytime you're working with small kids, you have a real sense of, of you know, they have no idea who you are, you what are. your skill set yeah. is, like they could, they couldn't care less. They just need you to be present, fun, <laughs> fun and keep them safe. Yeah. And um, so what was nice is even at that point where I had not a whole lot to offer from a skill standpoint, except actually, again, the theater background comes in hugely helpful when you're working <laughs> with small children. Sure. All those clowning classes like <laughs> came in really handy. Um, but they just sort of they just want they just want you they don't want your name they don't want your history they don't want your family they just want you and there's something incredibly grounding about that and it was right at a moment where i needed that sort of a, a group of people a group of 3 year olds mm. who were like we just like you um and and that was <laughs> that's really a little sweet. sad but it was really um 
it was it was very just personally affirming of I'm actually this person first and all these other things are layers on top of me. And so, Uh-oh. yeah, that was a nice uh, was a nice, nice moment to have at that particular moment in time. What's your advice for other people searching for meaning? I mean, I think that there's something about getting away and sort of stripping off layers that other people associate with you um, and being where you feel the most like yourself, um, I think is, and whether that's with family or whether that's by yourself or um, I think that's helpful for resetting um, sort of who you are because you're the person that gets to define. I mean, other people might write write a paragraph or define you in certain ways, but ultimately it's 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 you and what you want to project um, out that gets to set the standard. I think that's one important thing. I think a lot of women get words put on them, and it's tough sometimes to break through that and sort of say, no, I'm going to be the one that sets actually who I am, and I'm still working at that. So when you were a teen, you sued your dad and cousins for what you felt was your rightful inheritance. I know you can't talk about the lawsuit, but I'm wondering, what's your advice to young women who want to speak up against authority? Ooh, I think there's there's a lot of different ways to do that. I think finding your voice as a young woman, even if you're, again, as lucky and as privileged as I am, is is difficult. And having a sense of self and a sense of confidence to do that can be very tricky. So I've always found mentorship in other people who can help reaffirm, you know, help give you power as well. So I've had a lot of role models, whether it's my mother or whether it's other investors, um, particularly in the impact space, who have helped me find the confidence to speak up to whether it's family or whether it's a financial advisor that wants you to invest a certain way and you want to do something different, um, to be able to say, no, actually, um, I have a voice here too. And so sometimes if you don't have it within yourself, if you find other people who can quietly prop you up from behind, I found that to be uh, really helpful. How did you learn how to handle wealth at such a young age? Oh, I don't know. Hopefully I'm still, I mean, I'm still yeah, learning. Still yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but my mom, I think is a huge influence on um, how she's balanced, you know, how do you be responsible in terms of your investments versus how much you spend versus how much you give away and always really thinking about the long-term goal of where you want to go. Um, and, you know, then then living by that, sort of watching her do that, I think is really, and again, back to that, just modeling good behavior um, has been a big influence. And so, and not brushing it aside, it's ultimately my responsibility to stay on top of those things. And so not running away from it. You said you don't want to wait till you're older to become a philanthropist. How come? Well, it's it's interesting. The old sort of paradigm has always been um, you know, you spend most of your life making your wealth and then, you know, at a certain point you turn around, start a foundation and give it away and then, you know, involve your children in the foundation. And that's been the model right. for a really, really long time. And what I think is exciting about um, impact investing is people saying, wait a minute, it's not just your philanthropy that has an impact. How you made your money, how you continue to make your money actually has a really big impact, probably bigger than anything you're doing philanthropically. Mm-hmm. And so um, let's focus on the philanthropy 
you know, let's look at that later. Let's actually focus on how it is you make the impact of how you make your money. And there are positive and negative ways that you can do business. And so, you know, philanthropy wouldn't have to work so hard if businesses didn't make such a mess. Hmm. And so I think that's the part of it that I don't like is that we we to then reframe sort of the traditional trajectory is you make a mess for most of your life <laughs> and then you spend the later years of your life cleaning it up with your philanthropy. What if you just didn't make the mess? <laughs> um, and so that's part of um, with Blue Haven, what we've been trying to do is say as a family office that runs an investment portfolio – we want to take responsibility for not just the financial impact of our investments, but what are they doing um, in the communities where they're operating. And is that how you would define impact investing? Because it seems like everyone has their own definition of this. Yes. Yeah. I would, um, yes, I would say step one is acknowledging that every investment that you make has a social or environmental impact. Hmm. It does. Some people would disagree with that still, but I think that's pretty hard to argue against. And then the second piece of impact investing would be to say, we can measure what those things are and we can try to improve them. Um, and so that for me is is how we've now looked at every investment in our portfolio is through that lens of not just what it's doing financially, but what are the social and environmental um, outputs and outcomes associated with that particular investment strategy. So you said some financial advisors dissuaded you from doing this when you first started out, and you had to say, you know, you know, this is something I wanted to do. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so when I inherited control over my assets, um, it also came with a set of financial advisors um, who are actually great and and very well meaning and had me in a traditionally invested portfolio, but a good one by by traditional standards. Um, and as I started learning more about impact investing and I started to really want to see a better integration between the things I cared about and where my money was invested, um, and I started to ask them about ESG, about could I invest in microfinance, you know, what does this sort of mean, what kinds of products do they have available that I could start to look at. And this was early days of impact investing. And so they kind of said they tried to dissuade me from it because they really didn't have anything to offer. Hmm. Um, I think that's one other sort of tricky piece of this that I've now come to be more empathetic about with the financial services community is um, they don't want to seem like they don't know, mm -hmm. right? They're supposed to be the experts. Right. And so... If you're asking them about something that they actually have no idea about, right. instead of saying, you know, I have, I don't know, they'll throw some jargon at you hmm. um, and try to intimidate you sort of out of it, right? Because they're supposed to be the experts. Mm -hmm. And um, hmm. that's not how I like to work with people. Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, and so um, – I think that um, – and also it was easier to do because there were there were fewer people asking for ESG and impact investing. There's now been this sort of groundswell of, of clients that are asking for it. So you, now I think it's harder for financial advisors to hide. But at that time, it was easier to dissuade me away from it. And it was, again, through some mentors and some other investors sort of whispering things in my ear and saying – 
this is your money. You should, if you want that, you ask for it. And I was like, oh, I can't, okay. <laughs> um, and trying to um, kind of gain control over that and not get out jargoned, it, that took me a while because also, as you pointed out, I'm an actor by training. I am not, I don't have an MBA. Um, I don't have a finance background. So it's it's pretty easy to out-jargon me, and it certainly was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so I've wisened up a bit now. Um, also, most importantly, added to our team full of people who are MBAs <laughs> and do have a finance background. Um, so I've surrounded myself with people with more expertise, which has helped. But um, it was pretty easy. I was pretty easily intimidated early on. What do you say to the people who think impact investing is just too risky or, you know, it's not necessarily the best use of your resources because of that risk? I think um, there are certain things that are really risky. So is venture capital. And no one's running away from that, even though the returns haven't really beaten public markets returns. Mm -hmm. But everyone still thinks they're going to get the Uber. (laughs) Um, I I would say um, back that up with evidence. Um, Show me the study that says it's riskier or that there are lower returns. And usually when you ask that, they can't answer it. Um, And so that's also the thing I find irritating about when I talk to sort of traditional investors and they try and tell me that they're very data-driven, they don't make emotional decisions, and so that's why they can't do impact investing. And then you say, all right, cite your source that says that there's lower return. Because I can cite all the studies that say that there isn't a Mm trade-off. And then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. It sounds like you have a preconceived notion about what impact investing is that actually isn't data-driven. It's just based on your own perception. And I don't like bringing that kind of emotion into my <laughs> investment decision-making process. So. <laughs> um, so you created a family mission statement with your husband when you got married. How come? So that was one thing that we really kind of wanted to do that's a little bit different, I think, with with family offices is – we wanted to see our family office as bigger than sort of um, a sort of a mini investment firm. We really saw it as, you know, we're whole people. We have lots of different interests, both in finance, in philanthropy, in um, advocacy work. My husband does a lot on kind of in terms of democracy building and civic engagement in the U.S. And so how do we create a structure that can reflect all those things, um, that can be this base where we can do all of this work and what is really driving it. Um, And so that's why we kind of took a step back and had, you know, a bottle of wine in front of the fireplace. And we're like, what is our family mission statement? (laughs) And at the end of all of this, possibly because of the bottle of wine, um, we ended up stealing it from my high school. Um, So go Nutrier. Um, uh, So and we we just amended it slightly. But um, it's uh, to commit minds to inquiry, hearts to compassion and lives to the service of humankind. Oh, that's nice. I know. And we were like, you know what? I'm not sure we're going to get better than that. So let's just poach it. Um, Sorry, it's an homage. We didn't steal it. Um, But (laughs) um, and. and kind of and kind of work off of there, and that those are those are the basic principles of how we want to operate. Um, and we want to see that go into our investment work, into our philanthropy, and everything in between. And then um, the kinds of things that we advocate for on a policy side, in terms of civic engagement as well. 
time now for your secrets. I'm Liesl Pritzker-Simmons, co-founder of Blue Haven Initiative, and my money secret is know what you own. Look inside of your investment portfolio and ask yourself if you understand all the assets in there and are you proud of what they're doing. For more episodes, head to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. And be sure to check out our Secrets of Wealthy Women video series on WSJ.com. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.